This is History West Midlands. Whilst most stories of evacuation in the Second World War focus on the children, the experiences of millions of mothers have been forgotten or overshadowed. Now, Professor Maggie Andrews of Worcester University tells their experiences and lays bare their emotions in her new book, Women and Evacuation in the Second World War. Her research reveals that whilst most mothers waved goodbye to children evacuated from cities and towns at risk of bombing or invasion, others went with their children, often into rural families who were unknown to them. As Professor Andrews tells History West Midlands publisher Mike Gibbs, their welcome in these host communities was often uncertain. Maggie, when we think about evacuation, we think of children leaving for the countryside on their own. We don't think about mothers who went with their children. And I think it's a surprise to a lot of us that there were a lot of those mothers. So can you begin by telling us with which children did mothers go along? In 1939... There were two groups of mothers who went with their children when they were evacuated. The first were those whose children were under five, that the government felt were too young to be evacuated on their own. The second were groups of mothers who volunteered to help the school teachers look after the children who were evacuated. And so they went as sort of volunteers with their children. However, in 1940, when the really mass of evacuation because a bombing occurred there was a very different situation. The government was no longer so keen for mothers to go with their children. But mothers, having had the experience of their children go in 1939, been less than happy about their children disappearing for months on their own. This time, a mass of mothers go with their children in what I term the people's evacuation. They literally, as the bombs come down, they gather up their children and they get out of danger areas as fast as possible with children of all ages, sizes and types. Some of them go with friends, some of them go on their own. They don't know often where they're going to. They may just get on a train and go as far as it can take them. They may go to somewhere where some of their older children have already been evacuated. They just do anything to get their kids away from danger. Do we have any idea of the number of mothers who actually, during the war, did leave with their children? It's very difficult to tell because so many of them don't do it through government evacuation schemes. Certainly we're looking at tens and hundreds of thousands rather than hundreds, if that makes sense. And some of them do it for very short periods of time. Maybe they do it for three or four months during the worst of the Blitz. Others go and spend actually several years away. Some of them settle in the countryside, never come back again. Um, So it's really hard to get a grip of the figures on this as it is on a lot of evacuation. And when mothers were making up their minds to go with their children, what problems at home did they face? In 1939, the big issue is around leaving husbands, I think. Will you leave your husband at home? What will he get up to if you leave him at home? So that frames a lot of people's approach. There's also the question of leaving older children at home. So many women have sort of five or six children. Some of the older ones will be working already, and they don't want again to leave them unattended in London. So 
One of the big issues for mothers is the mix of responsibilities they have. Have they got their husbands to look after, older children to look after who may be already working? Have they got elderly relatives to look after? If they've got any of those groups, it's quite difficult for them to go with their children. I think as war goes on, and many men are in the forces, many of the elderly themselves or the ill have been evacuated, then it becomes a different decision. And particularly when the real blitz begins. At that point, it becomes not a rational decision, it becomes an emotional response to, I must get myself and my children to safety, anyhow, anywhere. When mothers and children set off on their journey, for mothers who never left, say, the East End of London or the back-to-backs of Birmingham, this must have been a great adventure and one of great trepidation. I think they had very mixed emotions, you're quite right. They're going to parts of the country they don't know. It's a long, difficult journey into the unknown, and they might regard it with excitement, but also with trepidation. They have very few belongings they're able to take with them. They can't necessarily take their pushchair or prams, which they would have used for their small children. So it's difficult. And then when they get there, they've got a very difficult, even humiliating attempt to find a billet. We arrived at a skating rink and then were picked out. So you can guess what some poor devils were like who has four or five children. They were still there on Sunday afternoon. And then eight families were put in an empty house and different people gave them bits of furniture. I admit some of them were a bit much with their hair in curlers and overalls. But we are not all the same. And emotions must have really run high. I think they did. And I think they were very volatile as well. There's quite a lot of euphoria at the beginning and very positive responses. For example, from the mothers who were interviewed in Worcester. There were tears, of course, as one mother thought of her husband in the services. Her other small children evacuated to other places, her home for the moment shut and empty. There were smiles too, far more of those than frowns, for the Birmingham woman, like her menfolk, is gay and of perky humour. It will do my old man good to have to get the dinner for himself, said one. And after the initial declaration of war in 1939, nothing happened. The phony war started. And many mothers and children returned, as I understand it, to London and to the other cities. They did. I think for these women... As the weeks went by, as they were living often in somebody else's house, maybe in half the house, maybe sharing a kitchen, sometimes one family would be upstairs, one downstairs, not feeling like they had a proper home of their own. They were worrying about often about their husbands and their elder children or relations left in London and their house in London or in Birmingham or other big cities. They weren't overly enamoured by the prices in the shops in rural areas. They weren't enamoured by the lack of facilities and social life in the villages. So although there were pubs, there was a bit of disapproval about women going into them on their own. There were not very many cinemas locally. The shops were very expensive. And they really didn't, a lot of them, feel they fitted in to rural life. If you add that to their concern about their families, their homes, their husbands, back in London or Birmingham or the urban centre from which they came, it was very unsettling. And a large number of them, given that there wasn't any bombing, just returned home. And when the bombing became serious in 1940, how did this affect their view? 
it changed. It really brings the danger into sharp relief. Now, for some, there was this sense that if anyone died, the family died together, so to speak. And particularly if they were aware of problems that their children might face without them. I'm keeping my little girl here. I don't want to leave my husband and we'd rather die together. Who would look after my child? She's delicate and has a club foot. So if that mother felt the way to keep her child safe or the best thing to do was to keep her with her in an urban area in London, others just responded to the bombing by literally running. Um, They gathered up their children, they got on trains, they got on buses, they walked in some places, and they just got as far as they could at whatever hour of the day or night from the danger. And you get really, I think, good descriptions by mass observation observers who are in stations and writing about what's going on and are in the areas that they come to, which are like Reading or Oxford. Some were going to relatives. Some had very vague connections in other parts of the country. One woman was just trusting that God will look after us. And in places like Worcester, near Birmingham, Oxford, outside London... There was like a tidal wave of mothers and children arriving, totally unplanned. A tidal wave is a really good way of describing it, actually. And it's so pell-mell where they arrive. They just get on a train wherever they can get to that looks safer than where they've come from. And they come literally in response to bombs coming down. But they really cannot cope with them. They haven't got the food in the shops. They haven't got the billets arranged. They haven't got the scope to look after them. And they end up in some of the most appalling temporary conditions as a result. One of the commentators who discusses this really eloquently is the writer Vera Britton, who goes to visit Oxford, where she had been an undergraduate less than 20 years before, and is appalled by what she sees. I had thought Oxford Station as closely crammed with humanity as any limited space could possibly achieve. But now, looking at the high street, I find that I was wrong. Up and down the great curving thoroughfare, packed almost too close for movement and pushing one another from the pavement into the gutter, struggles a crowd which varies from harassed dons in tweeds to weary homeless mothers from poplar to plasto, dragging small bewildered children by the hand. And this led to a major housing crisis and these evacuees were really reaching the farther reaches of Scotland and Cornwall. The evacuees are absolutely everywhere and anywhere that they think will be safe. It does cause a huge housing crisis in those areas. Not unreasonably, women with their children, they want what they want is a house to rent so they can set up a home and look after their children. But actually... They are being exploited in some areas, they're being resisted in other areas, and they are struggling to find somewhere appropriate. And the mass observation again reports on this. Millions of people had redistributed themselves at random. Voluntary evacuees from London have penetrated as far as the highlands of Scotland and the pubs of Cornwall. Profiteering was rampant. Our files included records of 16 guineas a week asked for a small Cotswold cottage, 18 shillings a week for a small bedroom north of London, 8 shillings and sixpence for a fifthly dinner in a West Country hotel. 
Billeting officers found their previous surveys and card index system quite useless, as accommodation earmarked for official evacuees was filled up overnight by voluntaries, usually ready to pay more. The mythology, if you like, of the evacuation paints a picture of national unity, of communities welcoming the children and presumably the mothers. How true was that? Well, the welcome started off very warm, but it has to be said that there were an enormous number of tensions between the mothers with their children and the places to which they were evacuated. I think there's lots of reasons for this. Part of it is that the mothers in rural areas, in urban areas, they have very different ideas of bringing up children, of eating, of behaviour. And the rural mothers had spent the 1930s really thinking of themselves as the heart of the nation, the best mothers that Britain could produce who were breeding these wonderfully healthy children compared to those in towns. And so they just assumed that anything that was different about the urban mothers was to do with their lack of proper education, skills, care. They were so condemning of them. I think that's one of the issues. I think there's another issue that really they are so short of resources. All of the mothers are short of resources. And within that framework, there is a sort of resentment at what looks like anybody who is getting the goodies that you're not getting. I think also, you know, they were ram-packed in very closely to one another. And I think that also created a difficulty. You know, if you've divided your house in two, then that doesn't necessarily go very well. I think an indication of how difficult relations were is the amount of propaganda that begins to appear in 1940-41, which is trying to persuade everyone to get on. (laughs) It says there are lots of films produced by the government, there are lots of leaflets that are going out, there's radio broadcasts, everything is trying to tell people to be tolerant and nice to each other and to accept different attitudes towards childcare and so forth, and it's not washing. There are also lots of voluntary organisations which try and alleviate these tensions between those in the countryside and those women who are having to share the house of people in the countryside. So they set up clubs where the urban mothers can go and spend time with their children and spend time with their friends and do their washing and things out of the way of the rural mothers who found them billeted upon them. So there's an awful lot of activity begins to go into trying to ease the relationships between these different groups of people. It'd be wrong to say that nobody got on because there are some who clearly had a wonderful time, who loved the countryside, who were able to get good housing. And in a sense, the housing is right at the core of it. For many urban mothers, rural housing was remarkably primitive. They were not used to lose several yards, to put it mildly, down the path, or to having to go to streams to gather their water, or wells to gather their water. Now, those were part of rural life at that point in time. And so for those urban mothers, trying to find an appropriate house was the real issue. If they could get an appropriate house, they could get a house of their own rather than trying to share it with somebody else. Then they tended to integrate well into the village. They tended to be quite comfortable in the village. But living with somebody else, sharing their kitchen, sharing their house, disputes over how children should be brought up, over what was appropriate food, over what was appropriate behaviour. There was shock and horror in some 
villages that the urban mothers used to go to the pub in the morning for a drink and to meet each other. This was just not acceptable in rural areas. So, you know, all sorts of tensions emerged. And the issue really lay down to resources and to housing, where they could get decent housing, then they integrated well, they settled well. But that was hard to find. And indeed, in many areas, there was real, real resistance to renting houses to them or sharing houses with them. The crisis in housing gets worse and worse whenever there's extreme bombing in an urban area. So by 1941, there is a real resistance in many of the rural areas to taking in mothers who are evacuated with their children. They'd rather have unaccompanied children. There's rumours and gossip about how badly behaved the urban mothers are. And so you find billeting officers really struggling to find accommodation. And we can really see that in the memories of a billeting officer from Kings Lynn. We all went up. Mrs Brand was prepared to use compulsory powers if necessary. And with us was Father Vaughan, the girl helper, our little family, and myself. We stopped in front of a cheerful modern brick house. I changed my mind, were her first words. I can't take him. Mrs. Wright clutched my arm. I'll have to go back to London, she whispered. Don't make me go back to that place tonight. I reassured her. I listened to the pleading of Father Vaughan and the persuading of Mrs. Brand. But these people have been bombed. They are the people to whom you owe hospitality, I said. I don't care, said Mrs. Dexter. I won't take them and she shut the door in our faces. The children were bewildered, unhappy. For the second time, the people of King's Lynn had turned these little souls away. And situations like this were not unusual. So what do you think this situation tells us about the social structure of Britain at this time? both class and in terms of rural and urban? I think it tells us that actually that rural-urban divide is much greater than we understand it to be. I've used the expression townism, actually, to describe the ways in which people in rural areas talk about those from the towns. It is full of the sort of language that we now associate with the worst of 1960s racism, actually. It talks about dirt and disease, and in some cases it talks about them infecting the countryside, which I find staggering and quite horrendous to read on the page. Looking back at this group of mothers who went with their children, went into the countryside, then most of them, as I understand it, returned to the cities. What lasting effect do you think this had on individuals, families and British society as a whole? I think that's an interesting question. I mean, some of them did go and settle and never returned and obviously found a new life, not least because to return to the urban areas like London, they were going to hit such a housing crisis there as well. But I think it did exaggerate the divisions between different parts of Britain. It reminded people how regionally varied Britain is, that if you go out of the space in which you live, you will find people with very different values, very different attitudes. And it's not just about class. It's about actually 
urban, rural, different parts of the country, the accents, the approach to life, the entertainment and social life, the food that you eat, these things are hugely different at this point in time. And they might have had that encounter. For many of them, it was not an encounter that they wanted again. So do you think we overestimate the social mobility of Britain at the start of the Second World War? I think we overestimate the degree to which Britain in wartime comes together, this lovely idea of the People's War, as if everybody is in it together. I think the People's War was rather more complicated than that. Everybody might have been keen to fight Hitler, though I'm not sure they all were, but the idea that they were all in it together, I think, is quite questionable. People were actually still in their little divided silos they were not necessarily keen to integrate with other people. I think also in a time of crisis, people maybe sometimes cling to the culture and the familiar and the things that they know. And for urban people going into the rural, this was not even vaguely familiar. This was a whole different way of life. And it was not in a time of uncertainty and fear, the one that many of them wanted to live. Maggie, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. In other programmes in this series... Professor Andrews reveals the experiences of mothers who waved goodbye to their children as they were evacuated and of the women who became foster mothers, sometimes for years. You can listen to these often heart-rending stories in our free app, HWM On Air, in the iStore, or find them on our website, www.historywm.com, along with hundreds of other films and podcasts, all for free. Professor Maggie Andrews' book, Women and Evacuation in the Second World War, published by Bloomsbury Academic, is available in bookshops and from Amazon. (laughs) 